fans. Oh, let me turn this down. Is that better? I don't know. I don't know if it is. I'm not going to cut that out. Hello, baseball fans, and welcome to Sully Baseball. This is the podcast where we talk about baseball 52 weeks out of the year. There's no offseason. And I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. Recording this on the 7th day of September 2018 from the mobile Sully Baseball Studio, also known as my car, driving on the 5, as we like to say in California, or at least in Southern California, referring to the highways and freeways with a the and then the number. I am on the 5, a long, ponderous, boring as all hell highway that connects Pasadena, California, to Palo Alto, California, the home of the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, the home of Stanford University in Palo Alto. You know what those two places, I've mentioned this before, if there's one place that, that is, if there are two places that are kind of, for the lack of a better word, my home in this weird life that has uh, unfolded in front of me, uh, splitting between Pasadena and Palo Alto, and the Super Bowl has been played in both of those towns. Isn't that weird? I mean, the, the Super Bowl has many times at the Rose Bowl and uh, once at Stanford Stadium. Um, wow, that's uh, that's really all I got on that topic. It's just I mentioned that before, and every once in a while I just think it's a weird little notion. Yeah, I'm in my car, and uh, here's the deal. I'm driving between uh, Pasadena and Palo Alto. That's a good five-and-a-half-hour drive, even on a day like today where there's not a lot of traffic. Uh, it, it takes a while. Do you know why? Because of physics. There's a lot of space. California's a big-ass state. And most of the state looks like flat farmland. And this, between the grapevine, which is the big-ass hill that you have to... The, the, the mountains you got to drive through. Once you get past the grapevine... It's basically flat and monotonous until you hit the junction that takes you to Gilroy. So I got nothing to do. And there's no ball games on. There's no day game on. And I'm all caught up on Jimmy Pardo and Jackie and Lori and Sports Without Balls and Friends Like Us and How Was Your Week and Musical Notation and all the podcasts I listen to all the time. I want to listen to a new podcast right now. So what am I going to do? I am. I'm going to listen to the podcast that I'm recording right now. It's very meta. It's a very meta thing. It's where this is the uh, we're in that stretch of the season where we've gotten past Labor Day. This is what I think is the end of what should be the end of the baseball season because for many people they've moved on from baseball. They've already started watching the NFL. They've already started watching college football. They've gone back to school. It no longer seems like summer. And it feels like when, you know, when the, the like the drugstore has the Christmas stuff up for like about a month too long, that's kind of what baseball feels like to most people in September, which I think is strange because it's actually the most exciting month of the year to be following baseball. Except if you are, let's say, a Marlins fan or a Pirates fan where your team is out of it. I mentioned those teams specifically because... I had on the MLB Network on the other day. Surprise! And I was sitting and I was watching what turned out to be a really, really thrilling game between Atlanta and Arizona. Arizona tied the game in the ninth on a two-out, two-strike, bottom-of-the-ninth home run 
by uh, Paul Goldschmidt. Uh, and Atlanta wound up winning the game. They had a pass ball on the top of the 10th. It was a really, really great game. And it's one of the things that I love about baseball this time of the year is that those are two contending teams, Atlanta and Arizona. Both of those teams, if they make the postseason, have a legitimate shot to go to the World Series. And they're facing off in a series in September where Atlanta's trying to secure their NL West, their NL uh, uh, East, that used to be the NL West, go figure, uh, championship potential over Philadelphia. And Arizona, who is, who's lost seven of their last ten games after getting clobbered by Los Angeles and seeing what looked like was going to be their division to lose, suddenly they're in third place, needing to leapfrog both Los Angeles and Colorado, that they played a tight, tough game but still managed to lose it. It was really thrilling. And I got news for you. I really, really don't care about Arizona or Atlanta. I don't. If Atlanta wins the pennant, fine. If Arizona wins the pennant, fine. If they don't, fine. And that's what made a game like that so thrilling to me. Because it goes back and forth and back and forth. And all I want is a good game, and I got it. I got it. But while I was watching MLB Network, they had a thing saying, uh, you know, catch MLB Network for pennant race fever. Watch the Marlins and the Pirates. I thought, really? Really? That's the game you're going to promote? The Marlins and the Pirates? Let me tell you, here's an interesting thing. In the entire history of the Marlins and the Pirates, there has never been a year where they were both contenders in the same year. The Marlins did not form until 1993. That was the year after the Francisco Cabrera hit. And the Pirates didn't have a uh, winning season until 2013 in that stretch. You know what? Someone's going to say, you know, Sully, the Pirates actually were in contention until they collapsed late in 1997, the same year the Marlins won the World Series. Yeah, I'm sorry. If you finish the season with a losing record, I'm going to find it to be a tremendous stretch to call you a big contender. So even... So, Unless if you want to really stretch it out to include 1997, Pennant Fever has never included a Pirates and Marlins game. It just hasn't. I'm sorry to break the news to you. I didn't want to be the one to tell you. But now you know. And now we know. But this is a fun time of the year. I mean, even, you know, it's fun even when your team's out of it. I remember distinctly there were years as, you know, as a Red Sox fan, there were years where they were out of it, but I kind of enjoyed some of the games in September. Some of the games where they played spoiler, and some of the times when you saw those players you kept hearing about in Pawtucket, it's like, I'll be dipped. There's Joel Finch. Hey, look at that. It's Jody Reed. And sometimes they turn out to be Joel Finch, a guy who never pans out. Or sometimes they turn out to be Jody Reed, who contributes big to postseason teams over the years. It's fun. I'll tell you something that's interesting, though. Uh, and by interesting, I mean it strikes me as interesting as I'm driving up the five alone with no podcast to listen to. I keep hearing about how some teams where we were talking about the strengths of teams' bullpens. They were talking about this on the Buster Only podcast the other day. That there's so, there's so much... 
for the lack of a better word, atrophy going on with some of the bullpens for the postseason bound bullpens that you're starting to see that it's going to make the forecast for the postseason very hard to make. Um, The Yankees' strength all year has been their bullpen. And in fact, I've said the, the, the map to, and believe me, I'm not saying anything that people haven't already said before. I'm not saying I've, I, I've created a great piece of wisdom here, but I've said, and other people have agreed, and, I, and, and we've, we've all come to the same conclusion, that the map for the Yankees to win the World Series this year is to get ahead early, get to, you know, have their starting pitcher pitch well enough that you don't let the other team go on a huge rally, get that lead early, and then get that lockdown bullpen. If the Yankees are behind early, that kills them. You see that when teams beat the Yankees. It happened the other day when the A's slapped the Yankees around. If you get to the Yankees early, they have a hard time coming back. Especially with Aaron Judge out, they don't have the lineup to do it. If you jump ahead early, I mean, if you're the Yankees and you jump ahead early, you've got a real good chance of winning because of the bullpen. That's been the logic all year long. That's one of the things that made the Red Sox-Yankees sweep uh, earlier in the year so huge is because it kind of exposed the underbelly of the Yankees, which was, look, at all you got to do is get to that starting pitcher early. That way they can't use their weapon. You can't use the weapon of Chapman, Britton, Batances, Robertson, Green, that wonderful bullpen they have, if you're down early. But now with Chapman hurt, it's put too much pressure on Batances. It's put a lot of pressure on Britain. And all of a sudden, you're seeing that the Yankee bullpen, their great strength, has been clobbered on its share of games. The Los Angeles bullpen, with Kenley Jansen having a bad heart that he can't go to freaking Colorado because of the altitude, what it could do to his heart. And I don't know if you've seen what it's done to the bullpen, but holy mackerel, the Dodgers bullpen is a mess. Even with their recent sweep of Arizona, excuse me, even with that recent sweep, you can't count on their late-inning relief. And speaking of Colorado, how many dumb games have they lost recently? How many dumb games have they lost by keep handing the ball to Wade Davis, by seeing their bullpen collapse? The Red Sox, whose games I'm still avoiding because Stephen Wright is still active, the thing that people are talking about bringing that horrible piece of crap onto the roster is the fact that he can throw in the middle innings because they need middle relief help. Are you confident with Hembry? Are you confident with Joe Kelly? Joe Kelly, fun guy to have in a bar fight in New York. Not so much to have in a close game. And even Kimbrell, I don't know, I must have to be able to stop listening to Kimbrell games once they deactivate right to get back to listening to Red Sox games because as great as Kimbrell's season's been, it seems like every time I've watched Kimbrell pitch, he's blown the goddamn game. Sorry, Ray. And so the Red Sox bullpen's a bit of a question mark. The Astros bullpen has been uh, chicken soup. Is that Does that mean anything if I say it's chicken soup? I don't know, but doesn't it sound like it's a, like... That's not what you want to be. How's the bullpen looking? I don't know. It's chicken soup. I don't know. That may be good. 
It may be bad. I just said it out of rhythm. You know, the Braves bullpen, they just blew a 7-1 lead in the 8th to the Red Sox recently. And part of what's happened, you know, the, the Indians bullpen, which they've improved, especially after the trade with hand, but they're probably not going to have Andrew Miller. I mean, that's part of the recipe for the Indians' success, is to have a healthy Andrew Miller. And you're staying, you're seeing teams like the Indians tried to do this with Miller. The Red Sox are doing this with Chris Sale. And that is to use the disabled list not as a place to have players rehab their injuries, but to say, hey, we got to give our guys a blow. We need them, we need them rested for October. I mean, we saw that a little bit with Chris Sale last year where he was starting to tire down the stretch. And then he got his ass handed to him by the Astros in game one of the playoffs. And then he wound up pitching okay out of the bullpen until he, they, you know, Farrell stretched him out for one inning too long, and it cost the Red Sox their elimination last year. This is what happens when you say, all right, our starters are only going to go through the order twice, and then we're going to lean on our bullpen. It means that you're going to lean on your bullpen for a lot of games where normally they'll be coming in the 7th, 8th, or ninth, and now they're coming in in the 5th or 6th. This is not your pal Sully doing a hole in my day. Starters went nine. No, I'm not doing in my day. Because first of all, I think that's overrated. The idea that starters go nine. Not all starters went nine. You look at, you know, you look at the stats from teams in the past. Yes, if you want to point to Bob Gibson, you want to point to Steve Carlton, Sandy Koufax, or whomever and you point out their double digits in complete games. Well, look at the rest of their staff. Most, you know, If you point to the Hall of Famers, yeah, they're going to have a crap load of complete games. What about the third, fourth, or fifth starters? They're not comp- throwing 15, 16 complete games a year. So there was always relief pitching. So let's, no, let's not get to the in-my-day nonsense. Also... And I've said this before, and I said this now. If you have a pitcher who is capable of going deep into the games, like a Justin Verlander, like a Corey Kluber, like a Max Scherzer, like a Jacob DeGrom, like a Noah Syndergaard, if you have a pitcher like that, then you then you utilize them. But they're like the big stars. You know, it's like if you have a big-time movie star, not everyone's George Clooney. Not everyone's Matt Damon. Not everyone's Denzel Washington. Not everyone's Sandra Bullock. You know, you can't rely, well, who's going to sell this movie? Um, you know, uh, uh, Jeffrey Rush. He's going he's gonna to sell the movie. He's a fine actor. He's not going to sell the movie. Sometimes you have to find different ways to sell a movie if you don't have a movie star. And sometimes you have to put together a pitching staff differently if you don't have a big honking ace. And big honking aces are the hardest thing to find in baseball. But it makes me think that when you see some of these games where, first of all, now with expanded rosters, my God, you have teams throwing eight or nine pitches for a nine-inning game. It's worse than the All-Star game, for God's sakes. But you're also saying, okay, your, your starters go twice through the order, and then you go bring in your relievers, and then you're stunned that the relievers are gassed by the time you get to Labor Day. 
And the, I guarantee you, some of these teams that have great bullpens, like Oakland, like New York, are going to have bullpens that look quite different, thank you very much, during the actual postseason. And don't you want the team that is in the postseason to kind of, sort of, I don't know, resemble the team that played in the regular season? I could be wrong about that. You may have different desires than me. I'm not you. I'm only me. But I was thinking about this as I was driving over the grapevine. That what if, what if you design, I talked about something similar to this years ago. But what if you design your pitching staff for people to go four innings? You get four innings out of them. Not just four innings out of your starter, but four innings out of your primary reliever. And you have, let's say you have six or seven pitchers on your staff who you ask to go eight innings a week. Maybe five and three, maybe four and four, whatever combination. And you have six of them to do that. And you hand the ball and say, give me three or four. Give me three or four. Beyond the starting pitcher, but it's basically get through the lineup twice. And you can mix and match. You have pitchers who pitch differently. I mean, another thing is that pitchers are throwing much harder than they had in the past. The idea of someone, you know, hucking it up there 100 miles an hour used to be like a unicorn. Now it's like a bologna sandwich. It's banal. And maybe if you have someone hucking it up there 100 miles an hour, you also have a junk, you develop a junk ball pitcher. You have a knuckleballer. You have someone who's left-handed throwing it, you know, sidearm. You have someone dropping submarine. You have someone coming up with different arm angles. It prevents a team from loading up in a platoon situation. But you have six pitchers who give you four innings each appearance. And you mix it up. Today, I just had to honk at someone. Did you hear that? Your pal Sully is, I have my uh, uh, my iPhone resting here on the steering wheel as I drive, and I had to honk at someone. That was kind of cool. Anyway, you have like six or seven pitchers who are designed to go, or trained to go, four innings. And each day, you pitch, you say, you two are the pitchers I'm using today. And you have your bullpen to throw maybe one or two, you know, you have... You have maybe five pitchers who are standard relievers. So then you have like an 11-man pitching staff, but you're not asking the same relievers to be pitching three or four times out of the week. You have, you build up arms. You have these arms who can go, you know what? You're going to, if you go four innings a a game and you pitch 40-some-odd innings, that's going to be 170, 180 innings a year. You're not blowing anyone's arm out that way. But you mix up the looks. You're not asking someone to go three, four times down through the order. And you construct that so you're also not doing 10, 12 pitching changes a game. You can actually let a pitcher pitch out of some jams. And you get, you stretch out the length. And you say, you're going to you're gonna go 6th, 7th, 8th, and ninth inning today. You're going to finish the game. This is when I look at kind of like what they're doing in Tampa Bay and say, I get what you're doing. But what it needs to be is more than just the guy who starts one inning, then another guy gives him five, then everyone else throws one inning. 
you have a bunch of guys who you're asking, give me four innings and appearance. Whether it's at the top of the game or the bottom of the game. And you mix and match. And you give different looks. And maybe, just maybe, you don't blow out relievers' arms that way saying, I need you to pitch four or five games this week. Maybe you can have depth in your pitching staff and variety in your pitching staff in a way that can carry over into October where you're mixing and matching is a much greater part of the game. You know, yeah, it would be great if you say, I'm going to have five guys in my staff, you know, be like the Braves were in the 90s. I have five guys in my staff where they're going to give me six or seven innings. I have one guy to pitch the eighth, one guy to pitch the ninth. That'd be great. But you know what? Finding a Glavin, Maddox, Smoltz, etc. is kind of hard to do. But if you have a good pitcher, it can give you four. And you say, okay, this group of six, we mix out. You're going to start, you're starting on Monday and you're finishing on Thursday. You, and the same thing. And you, and you mix and match them. Or you have them work as a tandem. I don't know. I'm mixing this up as I'm on the five. But these two pitchers are going to give you eight innings. And then the relievers will fill in the rest. Fill in when needed. I think it's a way to look at it. And it's also a way to look into breaking in pitchers and saying, hey, look it, I got this super talented young pitcher, but I'm not ready to have him throw 200 innings. Great. Have him throw four here and four there. Boom. And you see teams get messed up when you start changing the looks and changing the arms. So... Have someone go through the order twice. Someone else go through the order twice. Boom. Relievers help you out with the other couple innings. You got yourself a win. This may be the way... I would like to see a team try. I really would. I'd like to see a team try. And you see a bunch of pitchers give you 40, 45 games at about 170 to 190 innings for the year. Is that outlandish? Is that crazy? If it is, let me know. I'm driving by myself up the five, letting my brain go wherever it goes. So go to sullybaseball.com. Like me on Facebook, subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, Stitcher, Instagram. I'm everywhere. You can be old school, send me an email at info at sullybaseball.com. The music is by Ted Thacker and Patrick Liskey. Just coming up with ways to design a pitching staff on the seventh day of September 2018 while I'm alone on the five. Been Sully Baseball, and I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Do what you can do. You can wave to me on the highway. 